As you remain standing, I encourage you, if you have your copy of the Word, to open to the first chapter of Genesis. This is where we will take our message from today. Genesis chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. And God said, let us make man in our image. After the likeness, after our likeness, and let us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth. Wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, what a great comfort we know as we turn to your perfect word. In our fallen state, we feel our weakness and we know in part our struggles to know the truth, to pursue righteousness and genuinely to desire holiness. We find ourselves immersed in and bombarded by the vain philosophies of men. Truth is presented as individually ascertained and subjective and ever-changing, and yet you have revealed to us that thy word is truth and that we are sanctified by this truthful word. O Lord, as we lift up our heads to the preaching of your word this morning, we pray for the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to enliven our minds, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, and where needed to bring conviction and repentance and a greater understanding of our utter dependence upon your grace and our daily need to find rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. For we pray and ask these things in his mighty and victorious name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's message in our continuing series in basic theology is entitled Imago Dei, and we will follow God's word seeking to better understand this term and its implication to our understanding of God, and we will also see how it is directly under assault in our present culture and context. 
And finally, I hope to leave us with an understanding of where we stand as the church, regardless of the consequences of those assaults. So the brief outline is, one, what is the Imago Dei? Two, examples of how it's under attack. And three, our firm commitment to resisting the enemy's attack. Woven throughout the message, I would ask that you please listen for some of the answers to these two questions. What are we to do? And where is our hope? So the first point, what is the Imago Dei. As we turn to the opening chapter of Genesis in our Bible, we find the story of creation where God speaks all that is into existence. And in doing so, he is laying the foundation for all the rest of scripture that follows. In the beginning, God, all that follows by good and necessary implication and by our determined presupposition means that we are created by and subject to the Creator. We are called to hear and to obey. We're called to receive. We are not in a position to argue and nuance and curate. And this is so very critical to understand and to believe. And since it is so important, and so critical, we should not be surprised to find that it is at this very point that we enjoin a crucial battle with the enemy. As we continue to read, we are told that in the beginning the earth was formless and void, covered in water and shrouded in darkness, while the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. As the days of creation unfolded, God gave form to the earth and filled it. He separated the day from the night, the waters above from the waters below, the dry land from the waters below. God filled these realms putting, by putting lights in the sky to separate the day from the night, creating living creatures to swim in the waters below and birds to fly in the sky above and causing the earth to bring forth living creatures on the dry land. And finally, as the culminating act, God created another type of living being, man. And as we read our Bibles with understanding, we began to see that the focus of this historical narrative clearly falls on this special creature. Not only is the formation of man God's final act of creation, but it is also a revelation of something. God is here speaking and telling us something that is of supreme importance. The first chapter of Genesis divides the totality of beings into two basic categories, the creator and the created. God stands alone as the uncreated eternal Lord of all, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Everything else is created and thus finite, temporal, dependent, and changeable. Some parts of his creation are living things, the plants and the animals. The plants spring forth from the ground and bear seed and reproduce according to their kind. The animals that move about on the ground and fly through the air and swim under the seas also reproduce according to their kind. 
and listed among this group is man. Like other members of the group, man is made both male and female and called to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. But for all the similarities that may be noted, there is something about man that makes him quite distinct from all the other creatures. As God created the living things, he bids them to be fruitful and multiply according to their kind. The main purpose of the phrase, this phrase, is not so much to introduce the scientific work of taxonomy. Rather, it is to provide the background necessary for contrasting mankind with all other living creatures. When God makes man, he breaks the pattern that he set by creating living things according to their kinds. The tenfold mention of this phrase causes us to expect it with each new living creature to appear, but something quite different happens when man is made. He is not made according to his kind or after his kind. Neither is man created according to any other kinds among the living creature. Man does not therefore belong to their kinds. Whatever similarities there may be between him and the other creatures, he is different. To put it in modern scientific language, he is not simply a particular species within a given genus of living, living creatures. Man is unlike any of the other living creatures. Surprising as it is, man is made according to God's kind, made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Man, like God, is a personal being. God himself, as the Bible later reveals, is three persons in one divine essence. Human persons are created beings, and in that regard, they are similar to and share characteristics with other created beings. But what is most important about human persons is their likeness to God. This likeness is so very special that it sets them apart from all the other creatures God has made. Man is not made according to their kinds. He is made according to God's kind. Man is made as the image and likeness of God. Bearing the Imago Dei, mankind is given a measure of sovereignty over all the earth, with dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, and every creeping thing. He is also charged to subdue the earth. The language suggests a ruling, even conquering position, as we read earlier in Psalm 8, and this is made clear in the text there. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. All things are placed under man's feet, but to be perfectly clear, tyranny and exploitation are not in view. As we continue reading through our Bible and make our way into Genesis chapter 2, we find that man is to follow the example of God in his stewardship of the earth. God plants a garden in Eden, and he puts the man there to work and to keep it. What God initiates, man is to sustain and cultivate God names the light 
day and the darkness night. He calls the expanse heaven and the waters seas. Now God commissions man to name all the living creatures that he has made. Though not using the vocabulary of image and likeness, Genesis 2 has its own way of underscoring the uniqueness of mankind among all his living creatures. When God formed the man from the dust of the ground and placed him in the garden, he declared that it was not good for man to be alone. So God determined to make a helper fit for him. Following this solemn declaration, God presented all the animals that he had made to Adam in order that Adam might name them. Why this parade of animals before man? Why did God not immediately create the woman? What looks like an interruption in the story is actually driving home the point of the story. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The point is that human beings do not really belong to animals, whatever characteristics they might share. There was not found among all the animals a helper fit for Adam, a created being of the same kind, one with whom he could fulfill his calling from God. Thus God made a woman who was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Like Adam, she was made in the image and likeness of God. Together they were to labor to fulfill the work of God, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth and to subdue it. God made the first male and then female. But all other persons would come into existence through them. What God did, the man and woman were now to continue, having been made in the image and likeness of God. Such a glorious beginning for mankind. They are imbued with and given charge to bear God's image throughout all the earth. But we know the story continues from there and that there is a tragic turn. Sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned as the Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans 5. And this sin, the fallenness of mankind, affected the Imago Dei. Adam's first sin, the sin that we inescapably inherit, has had and continues to have terrible consequences in the world today. So what are we to do? This is the point where we need to hold tightly to several important teachings from God's holy word. Remember, remember our starting position. In the beginning, God. Whatever God says says next, we are to receive and to obey. We are created distinct from all the other creatures, bearing the image of God, the Imago Dei. Man sinned, and all mankind are conceived and born in sin, inheriting original sin from and in Adam, and this is inescapable. In this original sin, the image of God is not destroyed, know that, but it is obscured and marred and needs the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be renewed. And how do we know this? We read in Colossians 3 this exhortation from Paul, Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed. And in Ephesians 4, we find this exhortation, 
But ye have not so learned Christ, if that be ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after, Christ, after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, renewed in Christ. It is plain from these passages that we may summarize that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are elements of the image of God in which man was originally created, and also elements that need to be renewed in Christ. When we read knowledge, it is not merely the faculty of cognition that is in view, that is the ability to acquire knowledge, but also the contents of that faculty. The cognition of imperial truths, such as those in science and history, are often a mere act of the understanding, whereas the cognition of the beautiful involves the exercise of our aesthetic nature, of moral truths, the exercise of our moral nature, and the knowledge of God requires the exercise of our spiritual and religious nature. The natural man, says the apostle, receives not the things of the Spirit, neither can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. What is asserted of Adam is that as he came from the hands of his maker, his mind was imbued with this spiritual and divine knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So as we see and confess this aspect of the image of God has become marred and defective, leaving us in a state of sin and misery needing to be renewed, it is good to ask, what are we to do? What has our all-wise, all-knowing Creator God done in response to our sin? And children, children, are you listening? Put on your catechism ears and listen up. And if you are bold, feel free to listen to the question and share the answer with me. Question. What effect had the sin of Adam on all mankind? All mankind. Mom and dads are out there mouthing. All mankind are born in a state of sin and misery. Question. What is that sinful nature which we inherit from Adam called? You got this one. Original sin, that's right. Did God leave all mankind to perish in a state of sin and misery? That's right. No, God purposed to save his people by sending a redeemer. And this is our hope. This is the good news. Really, really good news. This is where the gospel enters the story. Who is this redeemer? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. We are not left to perish in a state of sin and misery. We are not forever in bondage to our original sin. When we hear and respond to the special revelation of God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
when His life-giving Holy Spirit wrought grace invades our heart, taking our stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh, and when He grants us saving faith to understand and believe and trust in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved and began the process of being saved. We are liberated, freed to live lives filled with thanksgiving before our Creator. As we submit to his holy word, and that means everything that follows in the beginning, God, we are being sanctified, we are being renewed and restored in original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In Christ, in Christ alone, the image of God has been restored and is being restored. And this is exactly what the enemy hates. From the very beginning in the garden, Satan's ploy has been, has God indeed said. Are you really and truly created in the image of God? Was God really that specific and exclusive when he created us male and female? Are we really not supposed to shed man's blood because we're created in the image of God? These are fundamental questions that we must know the answers to. If we don't know the answers to these questions, then Satan's ploy is already at work, opening, opening the door to all sorts of corruption, all sorts of evil, all sorts of soul-destroying sin. We must know how and why we were created, and knowing means trusting God's perfect revelation. And this brings us to our second point. I'd like to share with you two examples of how the Imago Dei is under attack. John MacArthur is quite correct, and I don't believe he is entering into any inflammatory hyperbole when he said, the two greatest attacks of terror on America were perpetrated by the Supreme Court not by any Muslim, but by the Supreme Court of the United States. The first one was the legalization of abortion. Subsequent to that, there have been millions of babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. It is incalculable to even comprehend that. The blood of those lives cries out from the ground for divine vengeance on this nation. The second act of terror perpetrated by the Supreme Court was the legalization of same-sex marriage. The destruction of human life in the womb, in a sense, the destruction of motherhood, and now the destruction of the family itself. No bomb, no explosion, no attack, and no assault on people physically can come anywhere near that kind of terrorism. Our country is being terrorized by the people most responsible to protect it, those who are to uphold the law, end quote. Roe and Obergefell. The enemy's strategy of attacking the truth that we are created in the image and likeness of God is on full display here. The minds and hearts of men and women across the nation and other countries are not in submission to what God has revealed about his special creation in mankind and in his created order. No, there is such abject, evident rebellion against these truths that we willfully, gleefully, self-righteously, 
justifyingly and legislatively embrace and promote the enemy's lies and deceptions, and in so doing, we, speaking figuratively, spit in the face of our holy creator God, and it is an abomination. Lest I give you too much time to let your minds begin thinking this of this as a political battle, it is not. It is not. As Paul warned the Ephesians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. When we soften our understanding of abortion, that being the deliberate termination of life in a mother's womb, including all forms of abortifacients, medical, physical, or chemical, including birth control pills, we have adopted the enemy's philosophical posture of, hath God indeed said. When we deviate from the plain and unambiguous revelation that God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and this includes any broadening of our understanding of gender identity in conflict with biological sex, or possible acceptance of same-sex attraction, including those so-called that are platonic in practice, we are taking a position right alongside Satan and saying, hath God indeed said. Every time we speak and ponder from a heart that doubts the truth of God's word, every time we recoil at a self-evident truth in his perfect revelation and desire a justification to counter that truth, we are in sin and we need to repent and believe the gospel. We need to remember who God is and therefore submit to what he has revealed and what he requires of us. It simply does not matter whether it feels right or not. It doesn't even matter if a scientific expert has an argument or evidence or a logical conclusion that we can follow and cite. If it is not in line with God's truth, it is not true. I read a quote earlier this week from a college professor saying, the greatest challenge to my teaching is the relativist, anecdote-dominated view of knowledge many of my students have absorbed by the time they enter my classroom. Too many of their teachers embrace the view that relativist, subjectivist, and ultimately personal experiential knowledge is the only kind available to us, or at least that it trumps other kinds of knowledge, end quote. Have you bought into the lie that your personal experiential knowledge can and indeed should trump other kinds of knowledge, but especially the knowledge we receive from God's word? We are all far more affected by and influenced by this approach to knowledge than we understand. It is in the air we breathe the music we listen to, 
the movies we watch, the books we read, the podcasts we follow, the conferences we attend, the conversations we gravitate to among our closest friends. It spills out when we speak political opinions, when we make medical decisions, when we act upon our fears, and even how we approach evangelism and mission. Man's worldly wisdom is in direct competition with God's perfect wisdom. Our fallen flesh will naturally and easily gravitate to and understand and embrace worldly wisdom. We must put off the old man and put on the new man and be renewed in original knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in order to more fully understand and love and embrace God's perfect wisdom. Now, none of this is said to deny the full weight in reality of the temptation to sin, to be drawn to worldliness in all of its forms. Sin is real, and temptations are real, and we are called to flee temptation and to turn and repent from our sin. And so at this point, let me just ask a few simple questions And I urge every one of us gathered here and those listening at home to ponder these questions honestly in the depths of your heart's understanding. Do you believe that God created some men and women with homosexual orientation? Do you believe, even hypothetically, that there might be a man who would benefit from a surgery that would bring his external appearance more in line with a psychologically feminine identity? Do you believe that supporting marriage between two men or two women may, in some cases, be the loving position to take? Do you believe that there may be some cases where it is wrong or unloving to counsel someone that same-sex attraction is a sin that requires repentance? Do you believe that there are some cases where counseling a friend to have an abortion is the loving thing to do, perhaps a case of rape or incest or even something else? Do you believe that when God's word says, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God, that it is something that may be dismissed as culturally unimportant and not an enduring truth that is grounded in the created order and something which must find God-honoring application in your life? Do you believe some forms of pornography are acceptable and are really not sinful? If you answer yes or even maybe to any of these questions, then the correcting, renewing light of God's truth from his word is needed. You should not be comfortable with that position. In taking such a position, you are asking, hath God indeed said? right along with the serpent. You are allowing his attack on the Imago Dei to take hold. I am not saying that that your feelings aren't genuine. I am saying 
that you can't and you should not trust those feelings. God's word said, the, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And right before that verse we read, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. We trust the Lord and his word and the sure, unshakable foundation of his truth. Subjective feelings are foundations of sand, ever-changing and fraught with all sorts of dangers. There is no place to ground your philosophical understanding of truth, no place to build the houses of your lives upon. In some ways, you may find it difficult to make this adjustment in your mind, learning to trust God and not your feelings. It is a weakness we need to confess and to seek help from the Lord. We find our strength in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his might and not in the echo chamber of confirmation and affirmation. We find in the friends and the media and the internet research we surround ourselves with and give ourselves to. We trust in the Lord. We rest upon the truth of his word. We call ourselves and all sinners to repentance. We declare the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And this is where we, as the church, will and must take a stand. So point three, our firm commitment to resisting the enemy's attack. As has been prayed already this morning, And some of you may know a Canadian legislation identified as Bill C-4 passed through their House and Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the Conservative Party in Canada. As of January 8, 2022, the bill amended the criminal code in Canada to ban what it identifies as conversion therapy. This bill criminalizes, among other things, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. According to Canadian law, as of January 8th, The belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. And a side note here I would like for every one of you to hear. Note the terminology and language that is being used. Cisgender, gender identity, sex assigned at birth, orientation. You could add to that all of these things. While it is useful to know what is meant by these terms so that we can discern the times that we are in, when we use and adopt these terms into our vocabulary, we are adopting the language of the enemy. Part of the battle today is found in the dictionary and includes a war over words and their definitions. Going back to the Canadian bill, it goes on to define conversion therapy as a practice treatment or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, that is, who they are, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, 
repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to sex assigned to the person at birth. The definition is intentionally broad, and it can clearly be used against any preacher who either speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual, transgender actions and lifestyles. This means as of January 8, 2022 in Canada, it is against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. And the bill continues. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. So today, faithful pastors across Canada and many in the United States, including several of the pastors in your denomination, the CPC, are preaching on this topic. For those in Canada, they are doing so in deliberate defiance of God's law. This is a clear case where we must obey God rather than man. For those in the United States, as far as I know, we are exercising a liberty that we presently enjoy, and we thank God for this liberty. But as is obvious from the two Supreme Court decisions that have just been cited, God and his design and his perfect ways are under attack. The enemy knows that to kill the tree, it is best to strike at the root. Let's be clear. This is an attack targeted at the root of God's word and his revelation. And it is here we stand in battle, and it is here we will make our defense and not yield. As we reflect upon this Canadian bill, knowing also that similar legislation is being proposed and pursued by the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, and we may add to that the history of ungodly rulings from our legislatures and courts, we see there may be a day in the not-too-distant future where even this very sermon could be declared illegal. People of heritage, know this. We will stand on God's word, not yielding, not softening, not quenching the power and truth that he has given to us as ministers of the gospel. And allow me just a moment here to glean from the opening chapters of Isaiah. As God looked across the wasted vineyard of his beloved people Israel and considered how he had blessed them, and gave everything that was needed for them to prosper, to bear good fruit, and make much wine and be thankful, he saw that the people had sinned and turned away from him and had become unfaithful. They were haughty and unthankful. And so God speaks to his people through his prophet, Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, Clean, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, 
relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This, this is the pattern of counsel and warning and hope that we will offer to all who are in need, who struggle and desire to overcome their sin whether or not it is politically correct, or if it is even legal. This is what we are called to, and this we must do. We will call sin by its name, and we will call people to repentance. And we will point them to the hope of the gospel found in Jesus. Though their sins be as scarlet, in Christ they shall be white as snow, if if they are willing and obedient, if they hear and respond to the gospel. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. These words from Isaiah are as fresh and relevant to God's work here at Heritage as it was to the people that Isaiah spoke to in his day, and as it has been to every church through the ages. We have no choice but to do this very thing we are called to do. As we stay faithful to the word and pattern of counsel we see in Isaiah day by day, week after week, and in the years to come, we will incur the wrath of your friends. And many will repay our efforts with scorn and hatred and contempt. We, as your pastors, may offend your sensibilities and find that we have to ask, along with Paul, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We may incur the scrutiny or the punishment of the magistrate and thus bear in our bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus and rejoice in our sufferings for you and fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church, of which we became ministers according to the stewardship from God, which was given to us for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. This we do because we love God, because we love and trust his word, and because we love you, the people of God, the church. It is our kingdom work. We are called to steward the Lord's vineyard, to study the union and communion among ourselves and pursue the unity and peace of his church. This is work that we all participate in and a work that is necessary to the spiritual prosperity of the whole church strengthening our common cause in Christ, which is the good of every individual member to the enlargement of his kingdom. This is good. This is right. And we should all, every single one of us, desire the good fruit of this labor. 
we have so very much to be thankful for. God has taken a people who were once not a people and made them a people, his people. You are God's people. It is God who made us in his image and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We are to be thankful to him and we are to bless his name. We are to seek his holy word with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and to respond in joyful obedience to everything we find there. Can we do that? The question before us today is, can we do that? I know that we can, and God in Christ will do it for us. As we approach now the Lord's table, the invitation to the Lord's Supper, I would like to take just a moment to reflect upon the importance of this meal and call us all to once again consider how we are to come. Along with the psalmist David, we ask, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In the Lord's Supper, we come to his table in faith, seeking his blessing, trusting in his finished work, looking to his resurrection, knowing that someday we will see him face to face. And so as we come with pure hearts, this means we are not to come regarding and treasuring iniquity and sin in our hearts. We need to come genuinely and completely as we know how, having confessed all our sins. This means we are to come in unity, loving one another, not having a grudge or any form of bitterness tucked away in the corner of our hearts, for that would be regarding iniquity and sin. If you found earlier in the message that you answered a yes or a maybe to one of those heart-probing questions, that is treasuring sin in your heart. But know this, know this, brothers and sisters, if we confess our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to perfectly cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul spoke to his brothers and sisters saying, and such were some of you. All of those sins were there and experienced among the Corinthians If we confess our sins and lean on Christ, our Redeemer, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed away, and we will stand in his presence as white as snow. This is your hope. This is glorious. This is what we are to believe and to own and to walk out in our daily lives. So take this moment now as we pray to confess your sins. I will be confessing my sins. Look to Christ and know his forgiveness, and be at peace. This is the good news. This is our mission, our calling, our strength, and our hope. Let us look to the Lord Jesus for the victory and trust in him as we now pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, how excellent and glorious is your name in all the earth. 
All your ways are perfect. All your gifts are excellent, and all the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. You have made your wonderful works to be remembered, for you are gracious and full of compassion. You have shown your people the power of your works. All your works are true and just, and all your precepts are sure, standing forever and ever. They are all true and upright, without one single exception. In the excellence of your goodness and mercy, you have sent redemption to your people and commanded your covenant forever. We praise you for who you are, and we give thanks to you for not leaving us without hope in a state of sin and misery. But in Christ, you have redeemed us, washed us clean, and robed us in his righteousness. O Lord, forgive us our every sin. Forgive us for not repenting at each opportunity you have given us. Forgive us for coddling and treasuring sin in our hearts. Open our eyes and let us see more clearly your holiness and your righteousness. Strike our hearts with the sting of conviction in our own sin, for this is a grace from your good hands. Fill us with true, unhindered love for one another and show us where we are being divisive and unloving and not esteeming others better than ourselves. Fill us with true, unhindered love for our neighbors, for the lost, and show us where we are respecters of persons and given to ungodly partiality. And lead us in the path of righteousness for your great name's sake. Welcome us, we pray, as clean vessels, into your presence as we come to your table, looking only to Jesus and trusting only in his righteousness. For we come and we ask and we pray in his holy name. Amen.